New Testament scholar and infamously former Christian Bart Ehrman dates much of the New Testament to the mid-90s AD, if not later, and a number of scholars are trying to push the dates of the New Testament writings even beyond the first century, as late as to the middle or latter part of the second century AD. Meanwhile, we have documents from early church fathers writing toward the tail end of the first century and into the beginning of the second that quote some of these New Testament documents, or at the very least, very heavily allude to them. The question we're going to ask today on this episode of The Apologetics is how might the writings of those church fathers inform an accurate understanding of the provenance of such New Testament documents? Uh, let's find out. This is Chris Date, and welcome to Theapologetics, where every other week I discuss a wide variety of theological issues and show how a properly biblical worldview can help defend the historic Christian faith from its critics. Join me as we think through what we believe and why we believe it, and not something else. Well, hello and welcome to another episode of The Apologetics. I am, of course, Chris Date. Um, as per usual, if you appreciate what I do here on this channel, um, and if you enjoy this video when it's done, click that like button, uh, subscribe to the channel, and click the notifications bell. All of that kind of stuff really helps um, get exposure across YouTube and beyond, so I'd appreciate you doing that. I'm really excited to bring my guest in today, but just a couple of things I want to mention before I bring him in. Firstly, this coming Thursday at 4 p.m., I think it's 4 p.m., yeah, 4 p.m. Pacific, uh, 7 p.m. Eastern, I will be on Trinity Radio, the show hosted by Braxton Hunter and Jonathan Pritchett, to, de to debate a believer in eternal torment on whether annihilationism, the view that I hold on hell, is heresy. My opponent will be arguing that it is, I will be arguing that it is not, um, and if that's something that interests you, you can tune into the Trinity Radio YouTube channel this, again, this Thursday at 4 p.m. Pacific, 7 p.m. Eastern. Also, next Tuesday, I am... I don't know if this is going to be a live stream or pre-recorded, um, but, but keep an eye on my Facebook page and you'll be able to find out the details. But this Tuesday, I'll either be live streaming or recording with Tim Stratton. Um, he has the YouTube channel known as Free Thinking Ministries, and he's going to be interviewing me on that same topic, this, the topic of hell. Again, I don't know if it'll be live streamed or if it's pre-recorded to be aired later, but either way, um, be on the lookout for that as well. Uh, Tim is a friend of mine and a colleague at Trinity College of the Bible and Theological seminary where I'm an adjunct professor um, and although he and I are on different sides of the soteriology debate um, he is very intrigued by my view of hell and is considering it and wants to pick my mind about it so uh, be on the lookout for that now um, what I'm going to be doing in today's episode is bringing in my friend Stephen Boyce to discuss what some of the church fathers that he has studied in the course of his academic research, um, what it is that they uh, say about, or, or what they say when they quote or allude to some of the New Testament documents, and, and, and we'll be discussing whether or not those quotes and allusions might help inform an accurate understanding of the dating of those documents. Um, what I'm going to be asking him is whether or not the quotes in those church fathers might give an indication that perhaps the New Testament documents were written earlier than sometimes they're given credit for. 
Now, he had a bit of a technical issue, and so I am trying to bring him in, but it will take a moment, so bear with me. Um, let me get him his face cropped and everything properly on the screen, and then I will switch over, and uh, you'll get to see him, and we'll begin the interview. Uh, just one moment. This is a little awkward, everybody. Sorry, all five of you that are watching. <laughs> all right. Okay, so I'm gonna bring him in now, and uh, I'll say hi to him, and we'll and we'll get started. Here we go. All right, uh, Stephen, it's good to see you and good to hear from you. Um, uh, thanks for joining me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, Chris, always. Uh, I've enjoyed it. Just about every conversation we have is good, so I've always enjoyed it. Well, I'm a great conversationalist, so that's to be <laughs> that's to be expected. Um, audience, if, if you can see and hear Stephen just fine, I would really appreciate you letting me know in the live chat. Um, it everything looks like it's showing up fine on my in my software, um, but uh, if I am if, if he is failing to come through either visually or audibly, let me know. And oh, Jamie says it's good, so awesome. Um, not not the uh, not as bad of a not as poor of a transition given our technical difficulties we were running into as I might have expected. Um, okay, well, so Stephen, I'd like to begin, as I often do with my interview guests, by asking them a little bit about their faith background, their testimony, if they have one. Can you talk a little bit, and, and you've got um, a, a bit of a peculiar background yourself. Do you want to talk a little bit about that background um, as we start to get to know you? Sure. Yeah, so I, I grew up in a good Christian home. Uh, my mom and dad from day one shared the gospel with all of my siblings. I am second of four. Uh, most people assume I'm the oldest in my family, but I'm really not. I actually have a sister that's older. I just act older. Uh, but <laughs> she wouldn't appreciate that if I just said that she heard it. But that's just the fact. I was always seen. I was always taller. I was always more of the leader. So uh, I'm second of four. Um, I made a profession of faith. I grew up in, in an independent Baptist background um, with a really heavy emphasis on King James onlyism and, and TR onlyism. Now, my my background wasn't in the radical like Ruckmanite goals and stuff like that, where it was better than the Greek, the English is better than the, the Hebrew, it wasn't anything like that. But it was very much emphasized. And so, but nonetheless, they preached the gospel and the movement I grew up in. Made a profession of faith uh, very young, didn't really understand what it meant, just kind of went with it. Everybody else did it. Um, and then when I was 12 years old, I actually heard uh, a clear gospel presentation that actually made sense to me for the first time. Made a profession of faith there, was baptized. And uh, from that day on, my life was changed. Uh, my view of sin changed. My view of Christ changed. And when I was 17, um, I was playing a lot of basketball at the time in high school, started getting recruited. Uh, that was my passion, was was doing that. that. That was what I wanted to do. But God had other plans. And um, <clears throat> he called me into ministry out of a sermon preached on a Sunday night by a youth pastor. Um, it was on how shall they hear without a preacher? Romans chapter mm. 10. And so I ended up responding that night. I, I came to my youth pastor who preached it. I walked up to him. I said, I'm not sure what this means, but I'm pretty sure everything you preach was meant for me. Uh, and he was like, well, good. Well, there's one more. We'll figure this out. So in a couple of weeks, I want you to preach on Wednesday night in front of all your peers. I was like, what's the worst idea I've ever heard in my life? Um, so I got there and probably preached Genesis to Revelation in seven minutes. 
Um, I don't know what I said. Uh, it's probably straight heresy, but I, I preached <laughs> a sermon in front of all my peers as 17 years old. Don't know what I said. Not sure what it was, but I remember sitting down at the end. And I was like, you know, this is what I was supposed to do. So answered that call, went to an, a, a very, very conservative um, uh, Bible college, uh, finished a degree there, started pastoring at 22. Uh, finished my master's degree not far after that, continued into my doctoral program in theology uh, with a school in Georgia. And uh, circumstances changed. I became Southern Baptist. I left the Independent Baptist because I had changed my view. I was no longer King James only. They kind of kicked me out, uh, wanted my ordination back, uh, that kind of thing. So I, I just made a decision with John Beasley. We were both on staff together. He was in evangelism. I was a pastor. He left evangelism to become a church planner in Seattle. He joined staff with me while preparing to go out to Seattle. And so we ended up working together and transitioned in Southern Baptist at the same time. We spent time pastoring a church together with a group uh, for a few months. Circumstances in life hit really hard. He went to Seattle and I went one way and I started a doctoral program at a university that opened a new program dealing with text and canon. And uh, I was kind of the guinea pig but um, I really liked the dean and I really liked his ideas and he had read some of my research online and so we kind of hit it off really quickly. And so I was finally in an institution that I felt comfortable in and that actually could be who I was and not have to worry about turning in a paper with a different translation or making an assessment like, I don't believe the story of the woman caught in adultery it was really written by John without getting labeled a heretic. So hmm. um, I was able to actually turn in research and, and I really enjoyed the projects the uh, one of the main deans there was giving me. And so I, I just finished um, that uh, research, turned in my dissertation January 1st, just got the grade back two weeks ago. And it's hardbound and in the library and I'm done. And so I get to um, graduate here in two weeks with my PhD in textual criticism and canon. So that's pretty much been my journey and a quick, I have two beautiful children. I have a little boy, Jeremiah's eight and a little girl, Kezia, she's five. Uh, she's probably the most adorable little girl in the world. So yeah, <laughs> I'm always busy. Um, we're starting a church here in Asheville, North Carolina, that's attached to the church out in Seattle, as well as the church plant that's in Malaysia, City Light, Malaysia. So a lot of apologetics, a lot of debates, a lot of discussions, and a lot of church planning. Yeah. Um, without going too much into detail, um, just out of curiosity, what was it that brought you out of the King James only, you know, independent <clears throat> fundamentalist, fundamentalist Baptist movement? I mean, you mentioned that um, you were ended up being kicked out. I assume that's because, at least in part, you came to different convictions about the uh, biblical text that, that rendered you no longer a King James onlyist. Is that, is that the case? Can you tell us anything about how that happened? Yeah, it was kind of uh, interesting. It started, two things happened for me. One, I was an Arminian and I hated Calvinism. Two, I was King James TR only. And two things happened. It was actually a philosophical change before a do doctrinal change on cer certain things. For example, John Beasley really got into the idea of being gospel-centered. And so he and I did a series together through the book of Philippians expositionally. And that was the first time I'd done something expositional. Hmm. So I really fell in love with this idea of like, man— Exposing the scripture and its original content and audience is really great. There's so much more in depth there that I've never seen before preaching it topically. So when I started doing exposition, I, I, I started running into the text issue where I saw the King James did not read accurately where the text had represented itself in the Greek, specifically in Philippians. 
And I was bothered by that. And the biggest one for me was when I was um, going through different passages. I'd always heard that the King James was just all literal, which is nonsense now now that I look back. And you had uh, phrases like God forbid in Romans, which is a dynamic equivalence. It's not really what it says. It says certainly not or may it never be. Um, but they were trying to make it really forceful in their time, in their generation. So I lost hope in this idea that everything in the King James was literal, that they mm -hmm. also used dynamic equivalency, which was evil because the NIV did it. Uh, so that's <laughs> yeah. what I was taught. So I, I ended up realizing I was not really given accurate information. Um, and then there was a, a phrase in the King James, I think I was in Acts or something, and it was – it was it was just wrong. Like I'd never seen it before. And then there was also a verse in Proverbs where it says a friend that has a, a person who has friends will show himself friendly. And there's a friend that sticks close to their brother. And I didn't realize it, but it doesn't actually say that in Hebrew. It doesn't say a friend who has friends will show himself friendly. It says whoever has a friends will come to ruin. I was like, man, that's a huge difference. And I remember emailing a, a professor of mine about it. He's and he shocked me, but because he had never said this in any of the classes I was ever in. He said, Don't forget, we believe in a perfect text, not a perfect translation. And I was like, What? I've been telling <laughs> my whole life this translation is perfect. So it kind of opened a, a giant wave of information to me I'd never seen before. So I investigated and realized really quickly how foolish the position was. And as I began to exposit the scripture in its proper context, all of a sudden I became more reformed. Um, and I was scared to death of that because I'd preached entire sermons against all reform <laughs> theology and five points of Calvinism. Thank goodness somebody finally deleted them off the internet. So <laughs> I, uh, I, I had started preaching through books like First John, and I just I quit lying to myself and and I let my prejudice be aside and just be honest. And I started changing, and I didn't like it. <clears throat> I was not happy about it. In fact, I probably preached half those messages with a bad attitude. Because it meant I was wrong, and it meant I didn't like certain things about God that I wanted him to be the way I wanted him to be. So I started changing both theologically and in my text position as we went on. Yeah, yeah, fascinating. I'd, I'd love to hear more about that story. And John's as well. John Beasley, whom you mentioned, he is a pastor of City Light Seattle here in my neck of the woods. And um, and I count him a friend. And, and I actually, I've reached out to him and said I'd love to have him on the show to talk about something he's passionate about as well. So, uh, yeah, and, and you guys having come out of that together, I'd love to pick your guys' minds more about that in the future. Um, as far as this conversation we're about to have, though, we're going to be talking specifically about not just text criticism, but um, but also the Church Fathers specifically. Um, tell us about how you became interested in and, and versed in the Church Fathers. How did that become something that you were particularly interested in researching? Well, the biggest thing for me was uh, I when I started my doctoral work, specific, the second doctoral work that I did, um, I realized how quickly guys were doing a good job in textual criticism. Um, Elijah Hickson, Peter Gurry, these guys were writing really good work and really good blogs. And then they came out with their book, Myths and Mistakes of New Testament Textual Criticism. And then I got into the area of canon. And outside of Michael Kruger, there's really not a lot of information on canon. And so I started looking at things from like, all right, well, what perspective should we have of the New Testament? These guys are handling the textual critical arguments very well. There's some decent stuff on canon, but not great. So that needs to be tuned up a little bit. 
So I wanted to hit a field of interest where I could really tackle something that was more new, where there wasn't a lot of info on and looking at stuff that people aren't writing on. And so I ended up um, listening in one of my courses. I had to listen to Bart Ehrman for a lot of my coursework. Um, he, had did, he had done a, I think it was 20 segments on Second Century Fathers. Um, I can't remember how many, it was 18 or 20. And I loved it. Like, and as much as I do not agree with Dr. Ehrman's conclusions on many things, like him as a teacher and listening to his lectures, I loved it. I fell quickly in love with some of the writings. He was going over the epistle of Barnabas. He was going over the Didache. He was going over Ignatius's letter. All of a sudden it became really awesome because I, growing up in a Baptist history perspective, these guys were treated as non-important and yet they were giving a wealth of information that I'd never seen before. And so I called up my dean and we had a conversation about it. I said, well, tell me, tell me what I can do in this field. He said, well, I do have some projects I think would be good. And so we had a discussion about let's go through the early fathers. Let's pull out as many actual quotations of the scripture, old and new, and let's actually take the data and compare them. Compare the New Testament to the Byzantine text and the Nestle Island edition, uh, 28th edition of today. And then in the Hebrew, if they used Hebrew, which most of them didn't, they mostly used Septuagint, and then compare it to the Old Testament. And if they quoted the Apocrypha, which ones? And let's talk about those. So I had to go through all their research and take every single citation that was obvious and label them either a direct, an indirect, or a partial citation, or if it was uncertain, I would put potential. And I had to categorically lay it out. And it really became something exciting because I started realizing how important the scriptures were to the early fathers mm. and how much of it they quoted and how they always leaned on its authority over their own advice in places. So it really came from projects that was really started by Bart Ehrman uh, that, that led me down the path to do a lot of the studies that I did in my doctoral work. Yeah, yeah. Well, very good. Well, I'll be asking you about um, all of that as we continue our conversation. Um, the, as, as I explained to viewers at the beginning of the show, my uh, what I want to do is look at what the church fathers, the ones that you've researched anyway, um, what they, which where they quote New Testament documents and what that might say about when those documents were written. But before we get to that, let's talk briefly about the fathers that you have done your research in so that listeners uh, and viewers know who it is that we're talking about when we use the names that we are. So, so first tell us a little bit about Polycarp and, and who, he, you know, who he is and, and what we have in terms of his extant writing. Oh yeah. Polycarp's great. So Polycarp was a bishop uh, in Asia Minor, who was trained by John the Apostle uh, himself. In fact, um, there are stories about him and John during the time of being in Ephesus. He was there with John at the uh, bathing, like these um, almost like public bathing and saunas. And he, I mean, he's telling stories about Serinthian, who was leading this movement of Gnosticism in the days of John. And he was talking about how there was like these great debates and arguments going on in the streets. But Polycarp was very learned, very educated in the scripture. He had a high view of Paul. We only have one letter from him, and that's his epistle to the Philippians. He would have, he would have lived anywhere from the early uh, or the late second century into the early first century, or the late Get first century, early second <laughs> century. Yeah. <laughs> 
And uh, he ended up transitioning into Smyrna, where he was appointed to be a bishop there. And in his training, he trained a guy by the name of Irenaeus. Uh, so Irenaeus was second generation from John the Apostle. And so he was training different guys all through his ministry. He lived a long life, and then he was martyred at the very end as an old man. Um, but in his work, he wrote a letter. He probably wrote numerous letters, but he definitely corresponded with Ignatius because Ignatius asked him to distribute the letters that he had written to the churches on his way to Rome to be executed. And so Polycarp was responsible for distributing not only New Testament documents, but other church father documents as well, writing advice to these churches. So what he ended up doing is he wrote this letter to the Philippians that we have, and it really took three forms to make the entire letter. One, there's a Greek copy of it, but it's really late. It's, it's almost close to the medieval times, uh, but it's, it's in Greek, but it's incomplete. And there's a Latin translation that covers a different section that's not covered in the Greek. And then you have Eusebius who actually quotes from it. And by taking the Greek copy, the Latin copy, and Eusebius's quote, we can reconstruct the entire epistle. Um, which just goes to show once more how incredible the New Testament is, where we don't have that problem where we have to like pull some of the story from here, some of the story from here, and try to reconstruct the whole story. We have so many manuscripts covering wide varieties of these sections of scripture that it's 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 none like any other work of antiquity. But Polycarp's epistle to the Philippians, in it he's very particular about his instructions. But there he's writing to them and he uses Paul as the basis of why they should follow his instructions. He, he actually does not make himself this great leader, like, well, I'm the bishop of Smyrna, so you should listen to me. He actually goes to the apostolic authority and says, read Paul, and this is what he said, and you should do it. So he was a, a guy who died probably around mid-2nd century, probably wrote this epistle between 130 and 145 AD. And he wrote this letter and we can find the scriptures in it that he quoted. Uh, he used a variety of New Testament as well as Old Testament passages to uh, argue his points to the church at Philippi, the same church that Paul wrote to. And yeah. he actually reminds them of that letter. Hmm. Very cool. Um, out of curiosity, you mentioned the reconstruction that we have to do in, based in part on Eusebius. Um, what is the difference then between uh, Eusebius's quotes from the epistle, um, which we use to reconstruct the original? What is the difference between that and, if I'm not mistaken, Eusebius is also where we get the martyrdom of Polycarp, which is what is sometimes, uh, which is attributed to Polycarp, but really, if I'm not mistaken, we have no reason for assuming that what he is said to have said in the martyrdom is act is in fact what he said. I, I, my understanding is we that comes entirely from later uh, church history people like Eusebius. Is that right? Can you talk about that at all? Yeah, it is pretty accurate to the fact that there's these texts are not fully reliable because there seems to be different nuances to the stories. I think Eusebius would have been the most reliable person to ask because he was given entire wealth of libraries in, in, in Caesarea. He had access to things that nobody else in his generation, maybe outside of maybe Jerome up in Rome later, but at that point, him in Caesarea, I mean, he had Constantine 
issuing him to do all kinds of stuff and he was given access to all these libraries. So he had personal records from the churches. I mean, he had the five volumes of Papias that mm. nobody has today. If it weren't for what he quotes from Papias, we wouldn't have anything. So he preserved quite a bit just in referencing certain elements. Most of what Eusebius said was not in depth from the letter. Most of it comes from the Latin manuscript and the Greek manuscript we have of Polycarp. He helped preserve just small elements of it. But as far as Polycarp's martyrdom, I think his depiction of what happened is more accurate. Hmm. Um, Polycarp certainly did not write the the letter. He is somebody else inscribed that and his story being going off and, and standing in front of the leadership there and then being sent off to his martyrdom not wanting to be tied up saying you don't have to tie me down to kill me you know the way his blood hit the ground and that it didn't burn or it fueled and all this like there's different theories about well what really happened what did he really say in his dying words and i would actually deviate and give precedence to um, eusebius on many of the historical accounts because he had access to things that most people just didn't Mm. Oh, very interesting. All right, well, the second uh, church father that we're going to be discussing today is Clement of Rome, not to be confused with Clement of Alexandria. Right. Um, so, so tell us who Clement of Rome is and, and a, a little bit about the epistle that we're going to be referring to over the course of this conversation. Yeah, uh, first Clement, I think, should not be confused with second Clement as being the same writer. In fact, I don't know of hardly anybody that thinks they're the same. Very different. Second Clement was probably scribed similar to, if not the same family as the epistle of Barnabas. They seem to follow each other quite a bit, and they seem to quote a lot of the same things. So they were in the same area at least first Clement I think is distinct from second Clement and even even Eusebius actually points that out in his work as well that not many people ever recognize the second Clement as Clement of Rome but first Clement would have been late first century uh, he would have been a man who was trained by both Paul and Peter while they were in Rome and um, when you look at when you look at his influence, you see Paul mention a man by the name of Clement in Philippians. And most believe in church history um, that he is the same guy. And Eusebius made an argument for those who held that view, and I think it's an accurate view. Um, and I hold that view as well. I think he was the Clement of Rome. I think he was the bishop there. One of the things I appreciate about um, Clement is that he was able to quote the largest variety in an early state of the New and Old Testament. His hmm. quotations were clean, very strict, and he was well-learned in both the Old and the New Testament. Whoever trained this man trained him in a vast, vast majority of both the Old and the New Testament. He hmm. had numerous manuscripts that were clearly um, from his time period of early gospels and epistles, and he was quoting them almost identical in many of those places to all the manuscripts that we have today. So, and we have early attestation of him in the manuscript tradition. For example, his writings are at the end of Codex Alexandrinus, which is a fifth century manuscript. The one that I worked on in most of my doctoral work and in my uh, dissertation was a uh, manuscript in Jerusalem that not many people know about, uh, Codex H. Now, most people may know that manuscript because it has the Didache in it, and it preserved a writing like that that we had lost and had no reference to outside of maybe some, 
small quotes here and there in church history, but this manuscript contained books like First Second Clement, Epistle of Barnabas, Ignatius's letters, the Didache. So most of my work began on that manuscript, and I'm calling it Codex H because I cannot, to this day, pronounce. I've tried. I've tried really hard to pronounce <laughs> that one word. Uh, so it's Codex H, but it has all of these early uh, attestations of these fathers in it. And um, the scribe's name was Leo, claiming to be, I think it was 1056 uh, A.D., because he dated it with his name and his name was Leo. Uh, we assume that's accurate. So that's the manuscript and it's in Jerusalem to this day. And you can actually, it was in black and white, but I was able to actually save the pictures of the manuscript and put them into um, uh, light mode and bring it out into color, like a yellowish and, and really zoom in and read the letters. I cannot stand the scribe. Um, he shorthanded everything. He brought condensed and he abbreviated and he wrote really small it was annoying. I had to zoom in all the time to read it. But um, I focused on First Clement from that rather than Codex Alexandrinus, which is the earliest witness of it. But they're pretty close. They're, they're not, there's not much to really report difference between the two. There are differences in anything, but not, nothing major. And um, so it is well attributed to in the manuscript family. We have far more for First Clement than anything we have for like Polycarp or even Ignatius, for that matter. Hmm. Okay, so with Polycarp, with his epistle, we're looking at, I think you said around 135, 140 A.D. Uh, with 1st Clement, we're talking probably, what, 95, 97 A.D., something like that? Yeah, I put um, in between 95 and 98. Okay. Um, that brings us to the Didache, which, of course, is not a, uh, a church father, nor is it the writing of a church father. Um, tell us, mm -hmm. when was the Didache written, and, and what is the Didache? Yeah, so I hold the same position on the Didache about its timeline. Now, they're claiming to be the apostles. Uh, it's not—I I don't want to say it's unlikely, because it's certainly apostolic. Um, whether it was those of, you know, John the Elder versus John the Apostle, who was apparently an Ariston, who were apparently a part of— the group that was with Jesus that was recorded by Luke as being a part of that 70 or 72, depending on which manuscript you're reading. <laughs> um, but whether he was a part of that group, um, I don't know uh, if it truly came by the hand of an actual apostle, but it's Orthodox hmm. and it's very, very close to the new Testament that we have. And one of the things I really appreciated about, reading through the Didache, like, I mean, it goes through, it's basically an instruction manual, how to do the Eucharist, how to do baptism. I mean, it gives like crisis situations. For example, um, one of the things that it talks about is baptism. And if you're not near uh, to take somebody to baptism, you go to, to living water or a river. Meaning running water, water, right? Water. Uh, what's that? L meaning running water, like a stream running or something, water. right? Yeah. Yeah. Right. Like, like a river. Uh, and if there's not a river, well, then you just take them to still water, like, you know, a lake or a, just a hole in the ground that has water in it. Um, and if you can't find that, then you baptize them. You dump water on them three times in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So it's like an instruction manual to um, uh, uh, different bishops and leaders and elders in the church. What's funny is the last chapter is nothing like the rest of 
the book, which I know you've spent some time on and have actually done. Some, it's more apocalyptic. It's like you went from like this instruction manual for preachers to this is doomsday. Apocalypse is here. Be ready. Jesus is coming. Kind of is like, wow, that that changed pace really quick. Um, but it, it's a tremendous writing. I would place it anywhere between 80 in 98 AD. I do think it goes into the first century and there's good arguments. I've heard people put it as early as 75. Um, I think it's more likely to be around the time of 90, uh, 95, somewhere in there, but I would open the door for an argument in the eighties as well, but it is very orthodox. It's, it's a very good writing and it actually has very early attestation predominantly of Matthew. Um, and so it, it used Matthew quite a bit. Matthew was the, the very foundational book that these writers were using for the gospel accounts specifically. Hmm. Fascinating. So, so you, it sounds like you would say that Didache may very well be the, the earliest uh, post-canonical writing or non-canonical Christian writing we have. Would, would that be fair? Yep. It and wow. First Clement. Well, yeah, but... First Clement, you said 95 to 98, but you, you say the Didache could be as early as like the 80s. Yeah, if, if the Didache is as early as I would put it, I would say it is. It could be around the same time as First Clement, but I, I happen to believe, if, if it's my opinion, there's good arguments. I think it's closer to in between 80 and 90. I think it would have been written similar, and again, we can get into this later. I think it would have been written around the same time, perhaps when John the Apostle was alive. Mm -hmm. uh, and still writing, uh, in my opinion, his gospel uh, in that time span. I think it's very possible. I think some of that actually presents itself um, in different ways, but I do think the Didache could have been written in that 80-90 period. Very interesting. Um, and then I think, lastly, in terms of what you've covered in your dissertation, is Ignatius of Antioch. Um, and I think it, with Ignatius of Antioch, uh, a couple of things worth noting here. First, I think we're talking about very soon after Clement of Rome, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but in terms of when he wrote. Yep. And secondly, unlike the uh, the epistle from Polycarp and the and First Clement and the Didache, with Ignatius, we don't just have a single letter. We've got a, a corpus, uh, if you will. <laughs> um, so tell us a little bit about Ignatius of Antioch, and, and maybe you could touch at some point on the difference between the different recensions of Ignatius, since that will come up as well. Yeah, there's the, the question is how many did he write? You know, did he and, and how long were the ones that he wrote? Uh, I am a firm believer that he wrote seven. I think there were seven letters. I don't think these extras that came in were authentic to Ignatius, which really made things worse that people started. So what ends up happening is now you have these names with Ignatius on it, these extra letters that come in, and they almost ruin the uniqueness of the original, what I would call seven letters, that really actually were written by him. And I really believe that those other letters ruined his reputation as a father. Uh, because what is the first thing we all talk about? And, and again, it's not a bad thing that you just brought it up. That's the first thing people talk about with Ignatius, if it is Ignatius. You know? <laughs> yeah. uh, it kind of it kind of put a bad rep on on his work. 
But and, and what it did and, is and which, by the like, way, um, and by the way, Unitarians love to do this because Ignatius has such a high Christology. He does think Jesus is God incarnate very clearly, and so Unitarians have to toss him out as being not genuine, uh, so as to avoid the force of what Ignatius seems to say. Yeah, he he expounded upon the idea of Jesus being deity and the the fullness of the Trinity. He's really one of the few that early on who actually attested the fact that father son and spirit were one not just one in purpose but one in essence Mm -hmm. so he he was a big proponent of that in his writings and see what what ends up happening is almost anybody held the fact that he was under the um he was martyred under the reign of trajan during the roman the emperor of rome at that time which would have placed his letters in his death anywhere between that 98 and 117. And so what ended up happening is because these other letters came in, you got guys like Richard Pervo and others who were like, no, no, it's around 135, 140. And so they tried to place Ignatius's letter and martyrdom later. And it's, I guess it's possible that it was later, but it seems like everybody witnessed that time during the reign of Trajan when he was put to death. And you understand, Ignatius wrote a letter to Polycarp. And he sent him to, like I said earlier in the program, he sent him out to distribute these letters for him. And he has an entire letter giving instructions to Polycarp, exhorting him to unity, how to get these churches unified. Now, the thing that's funny about Ignatius is if you read him, he's almost like a psycho. Like he wanted to die so badly. He, he does seem to, to be, be pretty murder. excited to be martyred. Yeah. Yeah, I know. I mean, he was... I mean, he went to to the great depths of almost saying, like, if the animals are not hungry in the Colosseums, I'm going to basically force them to eat me. I mean, (laughs) he he was suicidal in some people's minds. Like, this guy needs some help. He needs special therapy. Um, He was determined, if I'm going to Rome, I'm not going to Rome to be a prisoner. I'm going to Rome to die. And uh, so he writes a letter. And his most famous letter, I I think, or really one of his most important letters— was his letter to the churches at Rome. Um, that was the the longest letter he wrote. Most of his epistles were very, very short, especially the one to Polycarp. Um, it was very little. Uh, he, he quoted very little scripture in it. He seemed to, to use books like Matthew, but obviously he loved Paul. Ignatius was very big on Paul. He quoted Ephesians and things like that. First uh, Thessalonians, I believe, came up. But he also wrote churches like to those in Smyrna, which is where Polycarp was. So he wrote a letter not only to Polycarp himself, he wrote a letter to the church that Polycarp was leading, those churches in that area of Smyrna, and he also challenged them, which interestingly enough, he used Luke's gospel uh, very, very strategically in that letter, if I remember correctly. But again, his his usage of um, the writing of Rome was probably the one that everybody wants to talk about because it was very doctrinal, very intentional, very detailed, and quite frankly, he had some home runs in there, like theologically. It's the type that you would put into a quotation and and put on Facebook. Um, So that's the one that people really enjoy the most. But yeah, he wrote various letters. He wrote to the church at Philadelphia, Rome, Smyrna, personal letters to Polycarp. But I do think that there were seven. I I think the main point is that I really believe there was just seven letters to them. I I don't think those extra were him. 
Now, now, just for viewers' sake, though, the difference between the middle and long recensions of Ignatius is not merely in the number of letters. The long recension does have the other the letters beyond seven that probably weren't Ignatian. Um, but there's also a difference in the seven that we agree he did write. Um, yes. And I think most scholars would agree that the long recension are uh, those are edit, edits to Ignatius and expansions that aren't really that don't necessarily reflect what he had to say. Um, and so when we start talking about Ignatius's quotations and allusions to the New Testament, um, just to be clear, we're talking about what the middle recension records his letters saying. Is that right? Or are you also looking at the longer one? Yeah, there's, short, there's a short, a middle, and a long. And I, I don't accept the long as much. And uh, again, there's so many opinions. And honestly, I think this really has tainted him. <laughs> Uh, because even when we're talking about the seven, it's like, okay, but which readings of the seven? Is it the short version? Is it the intermediate version? Is it the long version? So I, I would I would actually put less um, viability on the longer recensions of, of Ignatius. I think it's more likely to be the shorter in the in the intermediate uh, versions of him. It, and that's typical expansion yeah. of the text as time goes on. It builds and builds. We see that in New Testament manuscripts where readings grow and grow. So <clears throat> I think the same thing happened with his letters as well. <clears throat> so then so then the quotations and stuff that we're going to talk about uh, throughout the course of our conversation, those are all coming from the shorter middle recensions, but not the long, correct? Pretty much. I, um, I In some of my work, I noted the long recensions, but really, honest, the, the long recensions aren't as in-depth on the scripture as some of the shorter. There are, gotcha. and, and what's interesting on the recensions that do quote the scripture, it always quotes it more right. Um, so it's, it's kind of an indicator. It's like, all right, so normally when he quotes the scripture, you can kind of tell he's doing it from memory at times where he'll add his <laughs> turn into it. And then in the longer recensions, it's always expanded and it's longer verses, it's more verses, and it's writing those verses out more in a, in, in a more clean transmission than he does the other time, which kind of gives you the indication somebody inserted that later and wasn't as good at quoting, uh, wasn't as good as quoting Ignatius as Ignatius was. Because Ignatius was very, you gotta understand, like these guys didn't just have you know, Bible apps, they just whipped out like, oh, I remember, what does First Timothy 2 say here? You know, right. and they had to pull out their scrolls. So most of them were going from memory quite a bit. And you could tell a time where they nuanced things or just um, came out and paraphrased it because they were just trying to get the concept apart. And then in the longer recensions, it seems to be like, okay, now he's really quoting larger sections and a lot more lined up with what our manuscripts would have. And it's less less of that um, summary. And so it kind of indicates to somebody like me who's looking at it, okay, this is probably added and somebody was sitting there with the verse open in the manuscript and actually just finishing it out. Right. Um, I can't say that for certain, but it seems to show itself to be that way. Yeah, yeah, very interesting. Um, and, and I know you said this, but just to reiterate, so when we talk about Ignatius's letters, we're talking, what, the roughly around 110 AD, something like that? Is that where you'd place them? I think so. Yeah, I, okay. I definitely think it's the very earliest portions of the second century. Okay. All right. So with all of that in mind, here's kind of what I, you know, I didn't send you questions in advance, and I've been thinking about how to structure our conversation. And what I'd like to do, if this is okay with you, is just go through the New Testament, talk about 
how uh, where Bart Ehrman and other scholars date these books and then talk about if and when or if and, and how much they are quoted by or alluded to by the church fathers we've just discussed um, and, and see if that might call into question the later dates of, of the of the scholars that we'll talk about. Um, but let me just say r- right off the bat, I'm not going to be looking here at either Mark or the so-called undisputed Pauline letters. And the reason is because uh, the fact that scholars, even Bart Ehrman, puts Mark at 70 AD or earlier. And um, and Bart and, and other scholars who recognize the Pauline authorship of the Undisputed Letters would therefore say that it's those are all from the mid fifties to mid sixties roughly, so um, so we don't really need to concern ourselves with those at least for in terms of the purposes that that I've put this conversation together. What I want to look at are the other documents, and so let's begin with the other two synoptic gospels, Matthew and Luke. Where would a, a Bart Ehrman place the of Matthew and Luke, um, and and what if any, and, and how much beyond that, if any, do scholars are, are scholars pushing for in terms of Matthew and Luke's provenance? Yeah, he puts them at late, late. For, he would give them first century timelines, but late, definitely after seventy A.D. Probably where I would put John. Um, but there is definitely a push from others like Robert Price who I had a tremendous conversation with. He's a really nice guy. Uh, Richard Carrier, I've done numerous dialogues with him. In fact, I'm gonna be doing a review of a debate coming up this week, this Friday. He's gonna be doing a review of that debate and I'll be with him on that. These guys are putting the gospels in the second century. (laughs) And I know that Price puts it at the end of the second century after 150 AD. Um, So there's, there's really, the four books, Chris, that were the least disputed in all of church history was Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Mm-hmm. They were not a part of the disputed books. They were not a part of the books that were seen as controversial to the sense of we're not sure where these came from and what provenance they came from. That was never a dispute. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were always accepted by any of the churches at any portion of the world you go into. And they always had a good pedigree of apostolic secession being Mm. passed on to these churches. And now kind of in this post enlightenment era, all of a sudden we have new information about these four gospels that far surpasses the guys that knew the apostles themselves, which is something that I really take issue with is I guess I'm, I mean, people can say it's old fashioned or maybe I'm stuck in the past too much, but my my thing is, and I and I got out of this with with uh, King James onlyism. Uh, I said numerous times when I left that movement, it's not that I don't care what the last four hundred years of translators or uh, reformers had to say about the text. It's just not the place I think we should start. Hmm. I don't think we should start with the last four hundred years of church history. I think we need to start in the first four hundred years. What evidence came from the earliest attestation of these texts? not the last 400. Let's work our way through history and then figure out where we are from there. And I think the same thing has happened on the other wave here is it's like, well, let's start with this era and all the documentation that we think we have, <laughs> which means that what Polycarp has to say is irrelevant, what Clement has to say is irrelevant, uh, what, what Eusebius has to say, what Papias has to say. And it's not that they'll come out and say, oh, they're irrelevant. 
but their test or Irenaeus or Tertullian or any of them, it's not that they'll just flat out and go out and say, well, their opinion doesn't matter. But what they're saying is, is when it comes down to it, their decision is going to go based on modern technique, which I'm not against. We use it all the time. But the testimony of the earliest witnesses is treated not as equal as they would do this with other works. And I appreciate uh, Bauckham uh, recently re reading from his book. He actually pointed out the fact that there is a, a double standard with the gospel accounts and how they are treated in difference to Greco accounts of the time before Jesus's life, the Roman accounts and history and their historians. There does seem to be in academics a double standard of this. Mm -hmm. So my issue, I guess, Chris, would be that these Gospels have been given just, well, there are these later dates because A plus B equals C, and since C is here, we got to add D and E to it. And so we basically do this big circle, and it's like, why, why are we starting with that methodology? I'm not saying we shouldn't consider it. Why is that the starting point? Why don't we start with the earliest witnesses? Why don't we start with the earliest documents that quote those witnesses? and break it down from there and then work into the new discoveries. So I think it's about how, how do we go about it? What is our goal here? Do we want to know the truth or do we want to prove them wrong or, or to Christians, are we so enamored with proving them right that we're not willing to look at any other evidence either that it comes down to who's going to bring the least amount of presuppositions into the equation to come mm. up with an answer. I think that's mm. really what it comes down to. Yeah, well, very interesting. Um, well, let's do some of the, what you think we should be doing, which is starting with those first four centuries. And, you know, you mentioned that um, scholars like Bart Ehrman typically place Matthew and Luke in the latter part of the first century, maybe 80 to 85 AD. Um, and then some scholars try to push them way out, even beyond 150 AD. Obviously, if the church fathers we're discussing today quoted extensively from either of these two gospels, it would rule out... Uh, um, those later, those really late dates. But the question before we dig into specifics, um, if Matthew and Luke were written as late as eighty or eighty-five A.D., um, the Didache, which I think you said was, from your perspective, the earliest of the four writings that we're going to be looking at, um, that's coming in right after Matthew and Luke, and yet, as you I think said earlier, did the Didache is like replete with quotes from Matthew. And it's not just the Didache. Matthew features in all four, all of the other church fathers you mentioned, Polycarp, yes. First Clement, and Ignatius. And Luke does in multiples of these as well. So um, can you tell us then, uh, talk a little bit more about um, these church fathers and their relationship with Matthew and Luke in terms of, I mean, are they, are they just saying some things that you might be able to argue are references to Matthew and Luke? Or do we have very clear direct quotes from them that would really challenge the later date idea? Idea. Well, and this is what blows the idea that um, it just it blows the concept out of the water when we're talking about Matthew, for example, that, well, these are just oral traditions because that I've had that said to me on numerous occasions. I, I just had a debate with Nassam, a Muslim, a few weeks ago. Um, I had it was actually, by the way, that debate. 
It was actually that debate, by the way, that prompted me to ask you to come on my show and discuss this. That was a fascinating debate, and I'll, I'll encourage people to, to check it out, um, and I'll make sure to include links in the description of the video. But anyway, go on. I'm sorry for interrupting. Well, what was more astonishing is two weeks before that, a debate of Josh Scott, who is a progressive Christian who used the same arguments as Nassam <laughs> against the, the Gospels. I mean, can you believe it? I mean, I remember calling Elijah Hickson. I said, you're not going to believe this. I debated an atheist a progressive Christian and a Muslim all within one month on the same issue. And all three of them use the same argument against Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all, all yeah. three of them, a progressive Christian an atheist and a Muslim. It was unbelievable. And the, the, the thing that all three of them said was, well, you don't know if they're actually quoting Matthew. It could be, they were quoting oral traditions of Matthew. The problem with that is, is when we talk about the Didache, for example, there are at least 25 quotations. I have 29 for potential, but let's just say there's four potential are not. They're just close enough, but not enough for evidence. We'll just throw them out. There's 25. We're talking about a short letter. We're not talking about a, a book the size of John's gospel or Luke's <laughs> gospel. Um, 25 times. Uh, Matthew is quoted, and and, and in the Didache alone, and we haven't even talked about the other church fathers yet. Right, exactly, in uh, in in numerous, and, and it's not just that; it's direct quotes. So you have ten direct quotes, for example, which is my my definition of direct quote is precise. So it could be a whole verse, a whole section. Um, so it's quoting the entirety of a section of Matthew. And it's doing it so closely that our manuscripts today validate the way it was quoted then. <laughs> and then you have partial phrases, like it could be one-liners. There was 11 partial phrases, but they're exactly how our manuscripts read. There's only four times that it was paraphrased, four out of the 25. So that's not oral tradition when it's reading it the way that it's reading it and it's aligning itself Oral tradition has a way of being more in the indirect category where somebody's trying to quote from memory or they're just paraphrasing it, but line for line over and over and over again. And this is where I believe it gives validity to the fact that it probably had apostolic origin. And this really validates the origin of Matthew. We've seen early on, and whether this is true or not, you have attestation from guys like Papia saying that Matthew's original gospel is written in Hebrew, later translated into Greek, whether that's true or not, I don't know. Uh, I think there's a good argument for it. It is interesting to note that Matthew does not quote the Septuagint when he uses the Old Testament like Luke does mm. or like the other Gospels do. He has almost his own unique translation. So the writer of Matthew clearly had an understanding of Hebrew enough to translate it himself into Greek. So there does seem to be this Hebrew origin. And if the Didache came from Jerusalem from the Apostles, what would have been the gospel that they would have used most likely? Well, it wouldn't be Luke because Luke circulated to Gentiles. Although they mentioned Luke, uh, they mentioned Luke, they quote Luke five times. And they actually took Matthew and Luke and actually in one place conflated their whole entire statement together, used Matthew, Luke, back to Matthew and ended with Luke. <laughs> so they had no problem even conflating them at times. But their main understanding would have been, hey, if they're a Jewish group of apostles writing to almost it seems like the jewish churches what gospel would they have used the jewish gospel because matthew was predominantly written 
to Jews. It was showing them Jesus was your king, you crucified him. He was of the line of David and Abraham, uh, whereas Luke took it back to Adam. So it makes it even more interesting of the origin of Matthew. Was it truly written to Jewish people originally? Does it have a Hebrew understanding and background? Seems like it would. And if the Didache is a Jewish document written by Jewish apostles to Jewish bishops and elders, it makes perfect sense that they would use Matthew more than anybody because that was the gospel to the Jews. Um, so I think it actually helps validate our understanding of Matthew's beginnings. Very cool. Well, then, so so how long would you estimate it would take for the documents having been first written, Matthew and Luke, I mean, um, for them to have time to circulate, become accepted across the churches, uh, and, and recognizable to the point that somebody like Polycarp or the authors of the Didache could quote Matthew or Luke and expect them to be to ha hold weight with their readers. How long would you estimate that process to take, such that uh, such that Polycarp, the Didache, first Clement and Ignatius could be quoting them. Um, I mean, d does a date even as early as 80 or 85 AD even seem feasible for, for, you know, could it have been that short amount of time for it to become a circulated long enough, well enough for the church fathers to, uh, to, to quote them? Or do you think it pushes the date further back than that? Well, I think that the, the New Testament churches were radical at getting the scripture out. I think that they were doing it fast. I think that Matthew's gospel, for example, if the Didache's origin is in Jerusalem, it wouldn't have taken any time to circulate Matthew to them because Matthew would have started there in, in Israel. Uh, whereas Luke would have probably been originated more in Rome or in an area of a Gentile nation of origin, and it was spread from there. The thing is, is if even if this writing the Didache is predominantly from Israel, he still had access to Luke's gospel hmm. because he quotes Luke's gospel five times. So these apostles were aware, or these apostolic uh, followers, whatever they may be, had access to the most Jewish of the gospels and the most Gentile of the gospels, really. Uh, and so you have Luke, you have Matthew here, Interestingly enough, Mark is not quoted, but Mark was probably the least quoted early on. I'm not saying he wasn't quoted, and I don't want your viewers to misunderstand me. I have numerous citations where they go to Mark, but Matthew was chosen over Mark more often than not. Luke was chosen more often than Mark in quotation early on. Uh, and as you get later, John gets really popular. But to me, it takes no time at all because the churches were radical at getting these documents out. Uh, so taking it into Israel would have been no time at all. Maybe a few years it could have spread into Rome. Think about how quickly Paul was getting letters to these churches, even when he was writing from prison, uh, writing his prison epistles, or he was writing his last will and testaments to Timothy and 2 Timothy. They were getting these documents. They were writing them. They were getting on horseback. Um, Paul writing to Philemon at the church Colossae. He sends back Onesimus. He sends not only Onesimus back, he sends two letters with him back. He sends the personal letter of Philemon. He sends the church letter of Colossae that that letter was not only to be read in Colossae, but that when they were done, they were to read that letter to the church at Laodicea. So they were getting these documents and their job when they got them was not only to just get them and read them, get them, read them, copy them and send them out to the next church. So it doesn't take long at all for the documents to spread 
And clearly, even if this, I believe Luke was probably written right around the time of Paul's execution, uh, a little bit before, not much. I think Luke and Acts were, were early 60s. I know some people put them in the 50s. I think that Luke would have been written right before 1 Timothy. And so here's Luke. And if this document, let's just say it's 85 AD. Let's take the let's take a middle number, 85 AD. You're talking about 20 years later. They're already in Jerusalem and they already have Luke's letter. So I believe they had it for a long period of time. I think it just took a few years probably to circulate a letter from one part of the world to the other because the churches were adamant about getting these letters. If the apostles wrote a letter to a church that was a treasured, that was a precious, that was a protected entity. They looked at the documents of the apostles as sacred. They held them dear. They, and, and, and that's why you have guys like Polycarp or Ignatius always talking about Paul. Why are they talking about Paul and Peter? Why are they talking about the apostles? Because they recognize that what they wrote had authority <laughs> more than their authority as bishops. So to me, they saw them so valuable that they were not good enough to be contained amongst themselves. They had to get them out. And they were mm -hmm. spreading them within a few years into Gentile nations and into Israel. Okay, but just 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 to clear things up a little bit. So on the one hand, I heard you say they were circulating these documents extremely fast and it would only take a few years. But on the other hand, you said you think Luke was probably written in, what, the early 60s? So, um, mm -hmm. so the early 60s is obvious. That's like, you know, 20 years roughly, or, or maybe, you know, give or take a few years before the Didache starts quoting from it. Um, and that seems like a reasonable amount of time to me for Luke to get circulated and accepted such that the Didache's readers would recognize the authority of Luke. Um, yes. But, but would a date of 80 to 85 for Luke be consistent with the Didache only a, a two or three years later or whatever, quoting Luke? Um, is that feasible? I guess what I'm trying to ask is, go ahead, yeah. I, I do think it's possible that they could have received Luke that quickly. Um, and they could have, it, it, it's where did the letter come from? And that's what the churches were interested in. Where did the letter come from? And people that were conflating this issue, this is why Paul got up in Galatians and jumped all over. Like, I don't care if you got a letter from me or people from me, or you got a message from an angel from heaven. Like if it's not like, because people were, were plagiarizing and pretending to be apostles. So where the letter came from and who delivered the letter is very, very important. It's not just who wrote it, who was the designated deliverer of that message. And typically in the letter, you would find those that delivered the letter. You would have mm -hmm. a name there so that they knew where to point. This is why it's so important uh, when you look at some of the epistles, read the names at the end. He's not just saying them to say them. He's giving you authentic authenticity of those who knew of the writing. So-and-so greets you. That means so-and-so knows what's in that letter. They are guardians of that letter. They know what should be not taken out of it or added to it because they have access to it. And they were a part of those who were aware of its origin. And then you had usually people that said, so-and-so greet him. I'm sending him to you. Accept him as a brother. All these things. These are letter carriers. So not only was it important that you had the letter, but who, <clears throat> who wrote it, who delivered it, and who is protecting it. And so 
it would not take long to be fair. It would not take long if the Gospel of Luke was written in 80 AD that a church in 85 AD in Jerusalem could have received the letter by then and had it authenticated. The problem with that is, once more, the issue I have with Luke, and I brought this up in all three of my debates, is First Timothy quotes That's right. Luke's Gospel. And they all, all three of them said, oh, well, that's oral tradition. The only problem is you have two clauses in the Greek that are equal clauses to the noun. And it says, as it is written in the graphe. Right. And so Paul was already referring to that phrase and teaching of Jesus from a written standpoint as scripture equal to Deuteronomy. So the question isn't, well, some canon got put together in three hundred uh, 325 AD uh, at Nicaea that was never held by anybody. There was a standard text and canon already in the first century, and the Didache, being in the first century, had already established the Matthew and Luke gospel as authoritative, quoting it as if they were quoting the words of Jesus himself. Not potential words of Jesus, quoting Jesus straight up and mm. in exact uh, logia, if you would. Um, I mean, even things like, don't give that which is holy to dogs, quoting Matthew 7, 6. <clears throat> I remember that one. That was like exactly word for word how it's written in Matthew. So there's numerous elements to that, Chris, where yes, it's possible. The question is, is it probable? Yeah. And there's other things that need to, to weigh that out. Gotcha. Yeah, it's, and, and we're going to be digging into the um, pastorals in, in a little bit. So that will <clears throat> then help push Luke even further back than the the 80s um so but but this, just to summarize what we've talked what we've discussed so far while a while an early to mid 80s date for Matthew and Luke is at least feasible in terms of it being able to be quoted by the Didache, Clemente, Polycarp, etc. It seems at least more plausible, more likely that they were written even earlier than that, especially in the case of Luke because of the pastoral epistle that quotes it, which we'll be talking about shortly. Is is that a summary, fair summary of what we've just discussed? Yeah, and, and to add to that, you know, we see in Paul's epistles, he makes the phrase, according to my gospel. Um, all the early fathers understood that to be Luke's gospel. And mm. so if Paul's saying that in his epistles, then these phrasings would be preceding his gospel narrative would have been preceding that. And again, this isn't just something that Christians held to early church fathers. Even Marcion, who was corrupting Paul's epistles and the gospel of Luke, even he purposely distorting it said that the gospel of Luke belonged to Paul. So when he said my gospel, he was the authority overseeing the, the work of Luke putting together this gospel. So <clears throat> there's evidence like that or him quoting it in 1 Timothy as scripture, quoting the words of Jesus about Muslim the ox, but giving honor or the wages due to the, the worker, the laborer is worthy of his hire. And so quoting that from Luke's gospel, calling it scripture, Paul saying, according to my gospel, using that as a point of reference, referring to the narrative of Jesus that he had written for him. Um, the churches understood that. There's so many other things that contribute. So it is possible, but I don't think it's probable. I think it's yeah. more likely that it's been before. 
Good. Okay. Well, we'll come back to um, the pastorals shortly, but first let's turn to the other gospel we've yet to discuss, which is John. And, you know, I, I am I, I am of the opinion that all of the New Testament was written prior to 70 AD, but that's I don't mind being wrong um, on a book or two about that. And this may be one of those books, and yet I suspect as you and I discuss this, we'll find that it's not, it probably wasn't written as late as it's often thought to. So, so let's start by asking the question, how would, where would Bart Ehrman and, and scholars like him date the writing of the Gospel of John, um, and, and why? Yeah, he'd put it in the 90s, um, about not far off from where I would put it. And most scholars would actually put it even in potential into the second century. And now there's this new push about John where, well, he was, John was purposely um, you know, writing a prejudiced theology to defend Jesus. So you got to deal with that. Um, but it is true, and this is why I do think John is later, it is the least quoted gospel. Um, it really is in the earliest part of the Fathers. Like, for example, Polycarp knew John, but it doesn't quote, again, as far as I know, um, we don't know what else Polycarp wrote, but what we have of Polycarp, he doesn't quote John's gospel. He does right. quote second John, which is huge. One of the things I enjoyed about this is there were certain disputable books in the new Testament that the churches did have some arguments about second John, third John, James, Jude, even at parts of Rome, Hebrews. Um, these were disputable books and it's really cool that, um, Polycarp actually quotes Second John and possibly Third John, but definitely Second John. But he doesn't quote the Gospel of John, and he was trained by John. So there's a couple reasons to think that. One, uh, perhaps what he was writing in that epistle to the Philippians, nothing that John wrote in his Gospel was really needed or relevant to the topic at hand. Hmm. Simple enough. Um, that makes sense. I mean, again, when these guys were writing letters, they weren't like, I wonder how many New Testament writings <laughs> right. of Peter I can fit in one letter. They had a problem in a church that was brought to their attention, and they're answering that problem by, by the Old Testament and the New Testament apostolic writings. That's how they're addressing it. Um, and so a lot of times they use epistles, naturally. Hey, problems in church? Paul talked about that. Let's turn over here. Uh, hey, Peter dealt with that in First Peter, dealing with persecution. Let's come over here, which is why First Peter was used quite frequently in Polycarp's epistle. Um, so you have these guys bringing out these epistles more so than the Gospels. But when they do go to the Gospels, they go to Jesus's teachings about um, definitely the Beatitudes, um, looking at his teachings of persecution or his promises of him as as their lord they always refer to those different links about jesus specifically but john's gospel was not used that much until really the middle and late second century into the third and fourth century then it became prominent one of the most popular of the gospels so either a lot of these churches didn't have john's gospel which would have been written in ephesus according to most sources of the earliest time so he's in ephesus he's in asia minor could it be that they didn't have, and I even put a quote that is potentially John in the Didache. Is it possible that they had a phrase from John? Maybe. Um, 
And in even if it was, it was extremely paraphrased. And we got to remember this too, that the oral tradition preceded the written tradition. True. A lot of these guys didn't want to write. In fact, I, I still hold the position that many of the apostles were, were mostly illiterate. Um, I don't think Peter wrote any of his work. I think that he had a minuensis or a scribe under each one. Mark wrote the gospel for Peter. Hmm. Uh, the people in Rome knew that Peter was going to be murdered and martyred soon. So it's like, hey, we like his sermons. Can somebody get that down on paper for us? And so they actually motivated Mark to do it, and Peter approved it. Um, so Mark wrote Peter's sermons of Jesus down for him. Um, and so John was in a situation in Ephesus where, according to uh, the fathers, he also did not want to write, but he was compelled to do so because they wanted his teaching to continue on after his life. And so most of these apostles were teachers. Outside of Paul, most of them were probably not writers. These were fishermen. They were trained in the education system till 12, went into family business. This is why First Peter ends with Silvanus being his scribe. This is one of my opinions as to why First and Second Peter are so syntactically different in the Greek language, um, because I think he used two totally different amanuenses for it. So you see scribes even by Paul because he was older, his eyesight perhaps. So you always had other people writing for him or for each other. Tertius wrote the book of Romans for Paul. He signs his name at the very end of it. So it's very possible that John's gospel was written by either he had learned Greek pretty elementary to the point where we have the gospel of John, which by the way, most people, if you're going to take Greek class early on, which gospel are you in? You're not, you're not in Matthew. You're typically starting in John's vocab. He has a very simple and a very basic vocabulary and you can use him. So it's possible John learned Greek by the time he got to the end of the first century. Who knows? But John's gospel, I think, was probably 80 to 90. And it's very possible that it was circulated. Maybe the Didache writers, mid-80s, had it when it was fresh and off the press. Or maybe your position, it was written around 68, 69, and they had it then too. Uh, but it seems like based on the fact that how much it wasn't really quoted from, except for maybe Ignatius, it makes sense that Ignatius probably would have started some more of this tradition in John's gospel because it would have been far more circulated by the earliest part of the second century rather than the end of the second century. Yeah. No, I, I hear that. And I think that's an interesting argument. Um, but at the very least, I mean, so you mentioned that you have identified what might be a reference to John in the Didache. But if I'm reading your dissertation correctly, you identify a direct quote of John in Ignatius's letter to the Philadelphians. Yeah. So Ignatius yeah. writes the Philadelphians, it knows where it comes and where it goes. And the Greek there is, uh, except for the post part of the, 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 the article, the, what's it called? The post, I forget what it's called, but anyway, Gar. Um, apart from that and the form of the verb to know, the whole rest of the quote is identical to John three eight, right? Pathen erchetai kai pu hupage. So the question I have for you then is, if Ignatius is writing around one hundred and ten, does I mean does a direct quote like that, if that's what it is, of John, does that require that it, that at least John has been written as as no later than like the mid eighties, or could it even be later than that, like some scholars suggest? 
Yeah, and again, I think it could still be in the 90s um, because of circulation, which is interesting. And I'm pretty sure it was, uh, was it the Philippians he wrote that to? Um, yeah. No, 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 Philadelphians. Uh, it was the Philadelphians. Okay, so funny funny thing about that. Think, think about that. So here's Philadelphia who receives a letter that would have originated in Ephesus. So that's unique that this was already circulating in that region. Here's Ignatius, who's on his way to Rome, who is writing to guys like Polycarp who knew John. He just assumes they already have this. It's not that he's giving them new information, like, oh, let me add an attachment to a new letter. It's fresh off the press. He's already standardized this reading. And I think it's That's John my point. Yeah. 3, 8. Uh, is it John 3, 8 or 3, 9? 3, quotes. 8. 3.8. So he he has already standardized the Gospel of John by the time he's writing here, which I would say is around 107. So he's writing this time. And yeah, but even if it was written in 95 AD, I still think it's possible that this has already been standardized. Again, who wrote it? Who delivered it? Where did it come from? Since Ignatius was friends with Polycarp, and they seem to write to each other quite a bit. Again, we only have one of those letters. And seeing how Polycarp was the guy that was distributing Ignatius's letters, Polycarp knew John. If there was a guy living on planet Earth who could validate anything the Apostle John wrote, it was him. He spent time training under him. He learned from him. He was appointed Bishop of Smyrna by John. So if there was any question about John's gospel, he's the guy. And mm. that guy is friends with Ignatius. So you better believe Ignatius has a copy of this thing. Um, and so there would have been much correspondence with this. And I think that it's very possible that if, if even if it was written in the 90s, he, he still could have already had a circulated letter of John that the church has had because he's assuming they also have that which he is quoting because he's quoting it for authoritative purposes. Right. So... Is it like I would put John in the in, in the mid eighties personally? I, I would I would put it around the mid eighties. And is that based um, at least in part on the fact that John has been standardized by the time Ignatius is writing to the Philadelphians? I like Ignatius's uh, understanding of it better. Again, if the Didache just quoted it straight out, I would have a probably slightly different view of John's gospel. But the fact that it seems to really be where Ignatius follows this thread and he's the one that's validating it i really like my odds with him and and so he's treating it as standardized for it knows where it comes and where it goes and he was using that in terms of the spirit of god so he wasn't just dealing with the verse from john he was dealing with the same theology of john mm -hmm. and that is who is the holy spirit he's describing the holy spirit as protecting him ignatius from those that were trying to corrupt truth. And he was basically saying, I have the promise of the Holy Spirit who is protecting me from these lies. And he uses the doctrine and teachings of Jesus on the Holy Spirit that is not in Matthew, not in Mark, and not in Luke. Um, it was in John 3 when Jesus was talking to Nicodemus. So he uses, like you said, he uses a different form, but I mean, it's, it's not a big deal. Oidos and oiden, I mean, not really not a big deal at all. So it's from the point of speech in which he was speaking it. 
but I do think he was really one that was setting an emotion and popularizing the distribution of the Gospel of John at the very early part, which is why I struggle with um, guys. Again, I struggle with guys like um, uh, Richard Carey or Robert Price who are like, no, these Gospels are are late second century. It's like, well, what are they quoting here? I mean, like, where yeah. are they getting their theology? So well, and that's. Well, and that's and that's what's interesting about this discussion as I'm live right now having it is that um, what I'm and correct me if this isn't a fair summary of what we've said so far, but it's looking to me like the quotes by these church fathers of these gospels does indeed rule out the 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 absurdly late dates that are given to them. You know, the oh, yes. the mid second century, late second century, but. They only make it improbable that, say, Bart Ehrman's dates, which are not as absurdly late as the ones I just mentioned, but are later than sort of the traditional conservative Christian view, they wouldn't rule out those dates. They would just make them maybe a little bit less probable than a date in the case of Luke of the 60s and in the case of John, the 80s. Um, and is, that, is that fair, that, that it's really... Bart Bart's dates would be consistent with the church father's use of them as we've been discussing but the likelihood is that they're at least a little bit earlier than what Bart says is that fair yeah I would say they're probably a little bit earlier and he also doesn't believe John wrote it it was copied so many times that we don't actually know what the original autograph would have said but here's case in point He's quoting one phrase from the Gospel of John, and as you pointed out, it is is spot on with the Greek text we have today. So right. we're not like I just uh, we just don't know what John actually said. And um, again, here's a guy who knew Polycarp, wrote to him, trusted him with his letters, who knew John. These guys are not going to be quoting just anybody as authoritative purposes, and they're certainly not going to build their theology off of just unknown letters about the Holy Spirit. If they were to know what the Holy Spirit was supposed to be like off the teachings of Jesus, you better get it from the people who actually heard Jesus. So if this isn't John, it better be somebody apostolic who heard Jesus, because what he quoted the Nicodemus in John 3 that was not recorded by Matthew, Mark, or Luke, not because they perhaps didn't have awareness because Peter or Matthew, for example, didn't know, but it's because what Jesus taught about the Holy Spirit all through John's gospel was extremely theological. And, and, and this is where Ignatius gets credited with his understanding of the deity and in his understanding of the Trinity. Where did he get that concept? Which gospel would have pushed him the most to come to that conclusion? John's gospel. We know he had it. He quoted it. So he built a theology on the Holy Spirit from John's gospel. No church father who was in a, a, an apostolic secession church was going to just whimsically bring out any kind of quote that came in. Well, that sounds really good. I think Jesus would have said that. I'm going to build my theology where I'm going to defend myself and say the Holy Spirit is going to defend me from deception as promised by Jesus. And then he quotes John 3. Nobody would do that who is a leader in the churches of God that were started by apostles, unless that teaching was delivered by people who heard Jesus's own words say it. Yeah. So Ehrman's argument is John didn't say it, and we don't know what John said. So 
here's a guy who knew a disciple of John, who was <laughs> friends with the disciple of John, who learned from the disciple of John, who was trained by the disciple of John, and he's quoting John's gospel. He's quoting the theology as apostolic, as if somebody yeah. themselves, Jesus, say that, so much so that he was willing to build his theology about the Holy Spirit off of it. Nobody in the churches would have done that unless it had authenticity and viability. No way. Yeah, no, that's that's really powerful. This is good. I, I'm I'm remembering that I called this episode. I, I referred in the title of this episode to the provenance of New Testament texts, not just the date. And that's important here because what you're saying is that Ignatius's citation of John may not be all that terribly significant in terms of when John was written, but it is significant in in terms of where Bart dates it. But it is significant in that it really pushes hard against Bart's claim that we that John didn't in fact write it, because Ignatius, somebody who knew John, is here treating his John uh, John's gospel as quoting the very words of Jesus. Um, yeah, yeah, that's that's powerful stuff. And building um, theology off of the Holy Spirit from it. I mean, right, right, yeah. I mean. These guys just didn't make their theology up out of thin air. I mean, and, and it just so happens to be that's what John gospel, John's gospel says after all. I mean, that's not a In the exact same words. <laughs> exact yeah. words, exactly. Yeah. I mean, that's not a coincidence. Yeah, no, that's, that's really, really good. Um, okay, well, I want to get to Paul, but before we do get to Paul, I want to lump a few texts together. Um, all of which Bart Ehrman dates in part or in whole to the last decade of the first century. And I'm here talking about first and second Peter, Jude, and the book of Revelation. Now the Revelation is a little bit interesting because Bart thinks that some of it was in fact written prior to the destruction of Jerusalem, but he thinks that the final version of it is, is 9095 AD. So right. Here's the first thing I'm, I'm noting based on my quick read of your dissertation. We, we talked about First Clement. He's writing in the very late, the, the, last, the latter half of that last decade of the first century. And First Clement quotes all four of those documents that I just referenced. First and Second Peter, Jude, and Revelation. Um, and in the case of First Peter, Polycarp, if I'm reading you correctly, has lots of quotes from yes. First Peter. Um, but of course, Polycarp, we're talking about the early part of the second century now. But the Didache has quotes from First Peter as well. And the Didache we've talked about is um, possibly as early as the 80s. So if we look at these texts collectively, are First Clement and Polycarp and Didache good reason for thinking that dating First and Second Peter, Jude, and Revelation to the latter, last decade of the first century might be a little bit too late? Or am I making too much of, of that evidence? I think that one of the most fascinating things in my entire dissertation, and I gave you the workload behind my dissertation. So what you have is really the printouted, you know, here's the work, here's the comparisons, here's the data. Um, and one of the things that struck me out of all of it, there was a lot of highlights and I loved it. But one of the biggest highlights was the fact that there was undeniably a quotation from Revelation. And this is something that Dr. James White and I talked about when I was on his program a few uh, weeks back. We spent some time on how the book of Revelation was implemented in First Clement in Rome, where Revelation would have been written probably off the island of Patmos, uh, as it states at the very beginning. Uh, you and I have a different view of Revelation as well. I, I hold to a late writing of it um, at the end of the first century as well. And so that does pose a problem 
um, somewhat for me with a later perspective, because if Clement is 95, 98, um, and John's, um, writing of revelation is somewhere between 90 and hundred. How quickly did that book get circulated from Patmos or maybe first sent to Ephesus? Because remember this letter of revelation was distributed to seven churches in Asia minor. Rome is not in the exact direction of Asia Minor. It's the other direction. You got Rome over here. You got Asia Minor over there. You got one going east and the other one's in the west. Mm -hmm. So Clement is in the west. The letter of Revelation or the book of Revelation was sent to seven churches in the east. So how quickly would that have happened? So this is where I'm willing to let the evidence land where it may be um, and, and be wrong about some things. Uh, this is where it could be that Clement is earlier than I date it and Revelation is earlier than I date it or they're both earlier than I date it and it could be that they're both dated right where I date them and that they really did circulate that quickly. I will say this, Revelation would have been circulated a lot faster hmm. uh, versus like a book like uh, uh, the church at Ephesus, the, the writings of Paul to the Ephesians. Why? He was writing to one specific location the letter of Revelation or the book of Revelation was distributed to seven locations, at least. These letters were distributed there. So if it was taken to seven separate churches, seven churches are distributing the letter versus one church. Take, for example, the book of Colossians. As I stated earlier, you have a letter going to the Colossians. They were told when they were done to take it to Laodiceans. Can you imagine if there were seven churches that received the letter of Colossians that were instructed to do the same thing in their territories? it would have gone seven times faster. So it is possible. Well, but that's assuming that the but that the that they are being sent the the letter the the the, the book simultaneously, asynchronously as we developers software developers would say. Um do would we have good reason for thinking that's how it would have been done that there would have been at least seven copies of the, of John's original the writer of Revelation's original document, seven copies made and then each of them asynchronously sent to each of those seven churches or could it be that those seven churches would have formed something of a circuit and and that letter would have been taken to the one and then the next and then the next and then the next. I think it's possible for either, and I'll tell you why I think it could be that he sent them out separately, because Ignatius did the very same thing. He had seven letters, I believe seven, and though they were not the same letter, he wrote seven distinct letters. On his way to Rome, he wrote all seven and had them distributed from there. Mm. Uh, and he actually had Polycarp do it for him from Smyrna. Uh, but it, it, it wouldn't be unheard of just from Ignatius's standpoint for somebody to sit back and write seven distinct letters like him, whereas John would not be writing seven distinct letters. Although in that letter, he addresses seven distinct churches. You in Ephesus, you left your first love. Right, right. You're lukewarm. So he did distribute them in that way. Um, so it's not impossible that he would have distributed seven letters under seven different carriers and messages or messengers as he as you see some of these other epistles, or it could be, like you said, it went to Ephesus perhaps first, his hometown, and they distributed it for him uh, into different parts of Asia Minor. Either way, it had a longer distribution. Again, Colossae, when you're done, take it to Laodicea. Even if one church received the letter first, say Ephesus, which makes sense because it was the first church addressed, right? 
and there were far more than seven churches in Asia Minor, but Ephesus got the first rebuke, so perhaps the letter went to them first. But even if they were distributing it, they weren't distributing it to one church. They were distributing it to six other churches. Mm-hmm. So the idea that the book of Revelation could have circulated faster on the basis of how many churches were addressed in it is far more than other churches in any of Peter's epistles, Paul's epistles, uh, or Jude or James. It was given to far more churches. So those churches could have been copying and distributing even faster. Okay. I do think it is Revelation, though, that he's quoting, and I and I talked to uh, Dr. White about this on his program. There is a uniqueness where he quotes the book. It's in um, chapter 34, verse 3 of Clement. He quotes the book of Isaiah. He gets into chapter 40. He quotes a phrase that, th- this is where it gets confusing, but if you look at it side by side very carefully, you'll see it. He quotes Isaiah, and then he quotes another portion of Isaiah, then he quotes Revelation, and then he goes back to Isaiah, which to me is pretty cool because <laughs> this is where it's weird. John in Revelation is quoting Isaiah, the same Isaiah verse. Hmm. So it's like, well, that just means he wasn't quoting Revelation. He was quoting Isaiah just like Revelation was. But there's one entire clause that is not in Isaiah 62 or Isaiah 40. It's only in John's commentary of Isaiah 62 and Isaiah 40 in Revelation 22. Hmm. So where did Clement get that clause that explained Isaiah's prophecy that is word for word the same way it is in yeah. the book of Revelation? So there it seems like he already had the closing to the book of Revelation in his person. Now, keep in mind as well, Clement would have been a bishop in Rome. He would have been very, very important. He was trained by Peter, Paul. He talks about their martyrdoms in his letter. So Clement would have known, and he would have been given any new letters of apostolic origin, along with any of the other major bishops in the area at the time, whether it be Polycarp, uh, or Ignatius, for example, these guys would have, if they were alive in, uh, in in their position of leadership, these letters would have been directly, hey, get this to them as soon as you can. They would have been the first ones to receive it because they were going to be the ones that were responsible for distributing it to the locations that they were all bishops in. So they would have been firsthand account receivers from messengers, just like when Ignatius needed his letters distributed, who did he have do it? He had another bishop do it. He had Polycarp do it for him. He didn't just have some random person. So if John really wrote the book of Revelation, it didn't matter what year it was, he would have put it into the hands of trusted carriers to yeah. trusted recipients who would have rightly distributed those, those letters. So lucky for Clement, even if John wrote it just a couple of years before him, he would have gotten a very, very original copy of Revelation, and we would have been able to experience a, a, a exact quotation of what the original uh, letter that was sent to him would have looked like. And, and I try right. to think so, that, Chris, like, man, think of that. Let's just say Revelation was written two years before. Just, just bear with me. Here's Clement in Rome, and this trusted messenger shows up on a long trip from the east saying there's a letter been written by John. He had a vision on the island of Patmos and the Lord Jesus told him to write it down. These bishops would have been ecstatic because you understand he knew Peter. He knew Paul. They're dead. He talks about their martyrdoms in his letter and he's writing to the Corinthians and reminds them of Paul's letter to them in first Corinthians. 
And so here's Poly, uh, here's uh, here's Clement in Rome. He's getting a messenger that says, you're not going to believe this. John the Apostle has seen a vision of God while he was marooned in the island of Patmos. And he has written of its of its visions and, and and he talks about the very end about God redeeming the entire universe. He brings reconciliation to all of creation. He deals with sin and death and all of these things. You've got to read it. And the messenger is known. He is a trusted messenger of John. So he knows the letter is coming from John and he is a bishop and he is, he is held responsible to distribute that letter all over Rome. Yeah, and so here's a guy like that. Can you imagine having firsthand copies? Oh, of I know it's insane. Vision of Jesus, and then he's writing to the church at Corinth, and he wants to give commentary of an old prophecy in Isaiah, but he likes John's commentary of it in the consummation of the Book of Revelation. He's like, yeah. I'm going to add the nuanced clause right. that John interpreted of Isaiah when I'm writing this. Yeah, that would have been beautiful. It I would, try to think that way. We don't think humanly about this. How they would have responded as humans receiving these letters? Oh, I know they would have been giddy, absolutely giddy. <laughs> um, it's it's awesome stuff. But but so it sounds like you're saying that this is somewhat similar to the case with the Gospel of John. That the it's not so much that Clement's quote from Revelation pushes the date of Revelation's writing earlier, although it might serve as evidence in support of that. Um, but rather, the significance is more in that um, it suggests that John the Apostle did, in fact, write the book because and received that vision, because otherwise Clement wouldn't have seen it as the um, authority that he clearly thinks it is when he cites it in his letter. Is that kind of what we're summing out yeah, sum it up? And, and to be honest, I, to be fair, even if it was John the Elder, which Eusebius flirted with the idea that... Rev John the Elder has come up numerous times. Papias was obviously friends with him. Um, and so he had a perspective of that as well. He would have been alive around that same time. Um, and so Eusebius had a theory that it was not John the Apostle that wrote Revelation, but John the Elder. And they were both from Ephesus and people got him mixed up all the time. But let's just be fair to that crowd that says, no, it was John the Elder. Even if it was John the Elder, John the Elder was a chosen disciple, not one of the 12, but he was mm. one of the chosen disciples who was with Jesus, who was sent out with the 70 uh, in Luke's gospel. Uh, him and Ariston are mentioned often, Papias references him. So even if it was John the Elder, just, just for that crowd's sake, it still would have been a legitimate book. It was still an authorized yeah. person who was commissioned by Jesus and who had seen and heard the words of Jesus, and Jesus certainly would have appeared to. I still hold strongly the fact that it was John the Apostle, not John the Elder. But Eusebius was kind of knocking on Revelation all the time. He didn't like it. So, um, <laughs> yeah. see, the thing is, Revelation was not disputed early. It wasn't until that period that people decided, I don't like this book. It's too weird. Um, so, uh, the, But the earliest portions of people attesting to Revelation was no dispute at all. It wasn't until later. Uh, but it seems like Eusebius was kind of obligated by the evidence to accept revelation, but he kind of didn't want to. So, <laughs> so 
It's like, if I gotta, all right. Yeah, if I have, do I got? Um, before we turn to Paul, I want to return back to one of those four epistles I just mentioned, First Peter, because yeah. unlike Second Peter, Jude, and Revelation, which you only find quotes of in First Clement, First Peter is quoted. A lot of times in Polycarp, if I read your dissertation mm-hmm. correctly, and it's quoted by the Didache. So at the very least, could we say that the fact that not just First Clement, but and not just Polycarp a bunch of times, but also the Didache, the fact that the Didache quotes First Peter, does that suggest that at the very least First Peter must have been written earlier than the mid-90s, like Bart says, or do you think oh, even absolutely. that date... Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, and Second Peter is far more disputed than First Peter. Nobody ever disputed First Peter. Even Eusebius struggled with Second Peter a little bit himself, but not First Peter. Um, it's funny that there's all of a sudden a problem with some of these epistles that there was really never any argument about before. Uh, but First Peter is widely attested by Polycarp. He loved it. He he, you know, it was almost like his comfort book hmm. as being a pilgrim and a sojourner as Peter kind of referred to them as in that letter, he saw himself as a guy who was in this world, but this was not his world. This wasn't his, this wasn't the place of the, of, of where he made himself comfortable believing that everybody would just like him. He recognized he was hated. He recognized he had enemies. He recognized persecution. I mean, the dude watched all of the apostles that he knew of or their trainees executed, martyred, tortured, and tormented all the way to that point, even to his own martyrdom. So he's going to accept the the reality of First Peter's truth. But again, here's a guy who knew John. He's not going to quote First Peter, I think it's nine times. Um, I'm pretty sure it was nine times. And really small letter the size of our Philippians. But not quote John at all. But yeah, and, and he doesn't. He doesn't. And, and again, it makes sense. John's book wasn't really relevant to persecuted churches um, and, and and comforting. It was more of a theological treatise, you know. Uh, but here, here's Polycarp, who's relating to the theology of First Peter. He is not going to just quote a letter that did not come with an authoritative attachment. This goes back to what I was saying earlier. Right, right, Here's right. Here's a guy who's trained by an apostle himself. He's not just going to receive any miscellaneous letter and just accept it. We know this is exactly what happened early on in the churches in the second century. You had these new letters showing up with apostles' names on it. Gospel of Peter, Gospel of Thomas, Gospel of Judas, Gospel of Mary. All these Gnostic texts, which is where I spent the second half of my doctoral work, they quickly rejected these books. They didn't waste any time expelling them. They didn't waste any time condemning them. They didn't waste any time calling them heretics and that they were literature of heretics. How did the churches know? Like, how did they know? Because they were they were put in a place of secession from the apostles where they had guys like Polycarp, like Ignatius, like Clement, who were trained by the apostles themselves. And any counterfeit that came, it was quickly detected. Quickly, like John didn't write that. Paul did not write that. Peter did not write that. So here's Polycarp who had thousands probably of conversations with John the Apostle all through his training. He's not going to be quoting a document and treating it as authoritative if it didn't come from an apostolic authority. He's not going to do it. Right. He was going to, he knew of the Gnostic writings because he was with John. He tells the story of John 
calling uh, Serenthian a heretic in the middle of town square in Ephesus when they ran into each other in the hot tubs. I mean, th they had a brawl of an argument between each other because John knew that Serenthian was writing these letters about a theology of Jesus, that he was not a physical being. And he was writing against it in 1 John, going against this theology. And then he runs into the guy who's creating this heresy in public. Yeah, it was a showdown. I mean, it was, it was lights out. I mean, because these guys recognize the enemy and they knew that any counterfeit document that was coming to the churches, they were detected and they knew the origin of those those heretics. And they were expelling them. So Polycarp, who was like John and knew him and trained him, isn't going to get a letter and just start quoting it as apostolic, not knowing exactly where it is, what it is and where it came from and to whom it came from. What, what pen wrote it, what messenger sent it. He's quoting Peter over and over again because he trusts it as an apostolic truth. Right. Just like all the other writings of Scripture, he, he quotes Old and New Testament. He knew right. them to be authentic. Well, that brings us then to Paul. I mean, there are other um, books we could talk about, but in the interest of time, I want to end with uh, Paul, the so-called Deutero-Pauline corpus. And I want to talk, uh, we can just lump the the letters to the second thessalonians letter ephesians and colossians together with first and second timothy and titus the pastorals because all of these books uh, well both of those two categories at least are quoted by the guy we've just been spending a lot of time talking about polycarp um but those epistles are also uh, quoted by ignatius and first clement quotes from the pastorals so what then does the, you know, so so scholars, my understanding is um, a, a lot of scholars, you know, the likes of Bart Ehrman, will, will place the date of these Deutero-Pauline epistles to the last decade of the first century, if not even later than that. Yep. But... Part of that is because they also don't think they were written by Paul, who was martyred um, before 70 AD. And yet here, we're talking about Polycarp, who quotes from both of those categories. And Polycarp is writing, I mean, Polycarp, as you said, was a disciple of, of John and had lots and lots of conversations with him. So what does that say then, in your mind anyway, about the, the tendency of scholars to place these letters on the lips, uh, on the pen of somebody other than Paul. Does that even seem feasible given how much authority Polycarp places in these letters? I think it, I, I think it's a neglected factor. And honestly, Chris, I haven't heard many people talk about it. And this is one of the things it's like, all right, so if we're going to be unbiased and we're going to leave our presuppositions out of the equation, how can we discredit the earliest passed down traditions that we have recorded in history for us? What do we do with this? So their argument is this. The Greek syntactical structure of 1st, 2nd Timothy and Titus, the pastoral epistles, is not like Ephesians, Philippians, and 1st Corinthians. And that it is too ecclesiastical <laughs> and that it is too high church to be something that a guy in prison wrote. So that's the argument. Here's the problem. There's two problems with that. One, uh, once more, as we see, Paul once again did use amanuensis, an amanuensis when he wrote. He used scribes. He used secretaries when he wrote. Um, he mentions their names at times. So 
when he's in his prison epistles, it's very likely he, he was not just sitting there in prison writing these things out. It's likely he was dictating things to, to those who would write for him. Um, so you can see the personality of the scribe come out, not just the writing. Also, of course it's going to be ecclesiastical. The letters of First, Second Timothy, and Titus are completely different from his instructions to those at Corinth who had carnality issues and people sleeping with their stepmothers. He's writing to pastors and bishops specifically of Crete and Ephesus, and that they are to take the tradition of the apostles and his teachings and pass them on how to ordain elders, how to ordain uh, different leaders and qualification to appointing deacons to older and younger uh, men and women in the church, helping younger men and women in the church, how to do church, how to plant church, how to find leaders for the church. These were manuals for church leaders. Of course, they're going to have a different dynamic to it than, hey, stop sleeping with your mother-in-law. Uh, you know, there's going to be a major difference between his style and purpose of writing a book like Galatians at people who are flirting back with the theology of Judaism versus a young man that he has invested a large portion of his time and energy in to be a leader in Ephesus that was going to replace his apostolic, he was gonna do the secession of apostolic teaching in that area after he died no doubt it's going to be different. It's a personal letter. Just like the book of Philemon is slightly different from the book of Colossians, even though they're written at the same time. Why? One was personal. One was a public letter. You and I would write to our family and friends in a personal letter much different than we would send a thank you note to a church who raised some funds for us to help us you know, with some need that came up in our family's lives. We would write it very differently to the church than how we'd write it to our mom and our dad who right. gave us money. Why do we think that's going to be different in the first century? I just think it's unrealistic. So you have these writings once more. Again, who in the apostolic tradition is going to quote just some random documents that have no attestation, no origin, no apostolic teaching to it, and, and quote them as authoritative scripture. I mean, these guys are not fooled. And, and especially if we're talking about Clement, who knew Paul, of course he's going to quote him. <laughs> um, he's quoting him very cleanly, too. And then, as you mentioned, Polycarp quotes 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy. Um, Clement quotes Titus and 1 Timothy. Second Thessalonians is quoted also, and Ignatius quotes Second Thessalonians. So they're well attested very early on. There's really no dispute until later. Um, this is something that post-Enlightenment theology and, and philosophy and ideas came from. These were not disputed in the way that they are today at any point. Uh, and the argument comes from, well, it's too high church to be Paul in prison. That's part of the argument there. I just don't buy that. I don't. I think we're not thinking realistically enough. I don't think we're thinking humanly enough. Just like I said, how would you write a letter to your mom versus an entire church? It would be very different. It's not going to be the same. 
Um, oh, and, and I'll add, by the way, it's not just the different purposes for which you might, uh, for which you're sending letters that you might speak differently. It's also just the way you, know, if, 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 you, as somebody who has done a lot of writing, probably have experienced the same thing I have, which is that in a very short period of time, your very writing style can change, your vocabulary. Yep. You look what I wrote just two years ago compared to what I write now, and you're going to see some pretty noteworthy differences. Um, and, and Paul didn't sit down and write all of these epistles in one single day. And so it's possible that his vocabulary would have grown and and his writing style would have developed as well. Well, especially as the church began to be more ordered. And I heard, um, and it was Josh Scott that said this, the progressive Christian. He said, yeah, but the churches weren't that organized by that point. It's like, have you read the Council of Jerusalem from Acts 15? What do you mean they weren't ordered? Like, yeah, they had right. an entire deal. Like they, they all came from different Gentile nations to deal with one single issue. And then they sent what? letters to the churches at what they decided. Of course they were organized. It's not unrealistic. So we're going to excuse 1st, 2nd Timothy and Titus because it's too orderly, and the church wasn't that well established and orderly by the mid-60s, but we see very early on in Acts 15, which is going to be in the 40s probably, <laughs> late 30s, 40s, they're dealing with circumcision issues, not just in Jerusalem, but all the Gentile nations, and they're all coming and meeting together to figure out what to do with it. They make a collective decision, send out letters to still not eat things strangled with blood. You don't need to circumcise. You don't need the burden the Jews carried this whole time. That's pretty organized. So I don't know where we get this idea that they weren't very organized even 30 and 20 years, 20, 30 years after that. That's, that's yeah. I don't buy that answer. And like yeah. you said, writing changes. Chris, I was reading my dissertation from back in 2016 in my first doctoral work, and I was so embarrassed at how <laughs> looked like in comparison to now. And I'm sure five years from now, I'm going to look back at this one and go, you know, <clears throat> that really wasn't as, as good as I felt it was good. Yeah. But uh, and that's one of the explanations for First Peter, Second Peter as well, by the way, is perhaps First Peter was written, we know by Silas for Peter, but maybe Second Peter was just that his way of expressing himself maybe peter learned how to write better uh and that's why the syntactical differences are there who knows it's very possible you're right you can change we all change our writing style as we grow yeah yeah well this has been super helpful i want i want to start to wrap up because we're we've been going for almost two hours and you and i could probably enjoy doing this for several hours longer but probably not viewers so um what, one of the things I like to do is to give my interview guests a chance to issue something of a parting message, something to sum up the significance of what we've been discussing for all this time in case they don't remember all the viewers don't remember all the details and stuff after after they end this this interview. Um, we're dealing in a day and age now when Christians are being uh, are, are in many cases very uncritically just accepting the claims of people like Bart Ehrman and even less careful scholars than him when it comes to the you know late very late dates for some of these New Testament documents and some of those documents not being actually written by Paul or by John or whatever. In light of that phenomenon that we're witnessing in this day and age, what would be, based on your research, based on how you've seen the Church Fathers um, that you've researched quote these books, what sort of 
parting message would you leave to Christians who might be troubled by these, this consensus that seems to be developing, that these books were not written by the authors that, claim, that the church has historically thought them to be, and so on and so forth? What, what sort of parting message might, be, might you leave for them uh, in terms of can they be confident that these were in fact written by the apostles and so on and so forth? I think that there's a healthy balance for a Christian. I think that one of the things that I look at Bart Ehrman and I don't see him as a horrible uh, teacher and he's full of bad facts. I think that he gets a lot of things right. It's his conclusions. Um, I think that if it weren't for Bart Ehrman, I wouldn't have done the research that you're reading. Um, So I don't think that we just look at modern scholarship or even those in the agnostic or the atheistic world and say, because they don't have my view, I won't read them. Right. I think that's our first sin. I think we should read anything and everything that we can find of all opinion, and we should take a, a, a worldview that's larger than our own to consider any facet we may have missed, that they may have gotten that was a good point that we didn't understand. So I, I think the worst thing we can do is just excuse people we don't agree with and not treat their work as if they have anything good to offer or something to learn. Sure. On the other hand. That's what I was hoping, that's what I'm about to say, but what about the other hand? Okay. <laughs> Go ahead. The other hand is just because somebody is well spoken and just because somebody has a lot of degrees from big schools like Princeton or Columbia doesn't automatically mean they're right. Mm-hmm. And if we're looking for a majority consensus and scholarship to agree with us in Christianity, well, then we're already starting off on the wrong foot because we're in the minority on a lot of things. Yeah, and we might as well just adopt, we might as well just let the whole world dictate our theology, let them dictate our church practices. If we're going to take a consensus amongst the secular world about what our New Testament is, the guardians of the New Testament Scripture in all of the church ages was the churches that were started by the apostles and the the secession that took place after that and the leaders that were trained after that and after that and after that, the guardians of the word of God were the church and its leaders and its people, the sheep that heard the voice of the shepherd. If we're going to let the unsaved world dictate what the churches have protected and maintained and preserved for us throughout the ages, if they, if if there if the church is no longer the foundation by which the word of god was established and written to and for and we let secularism be the means and definitions of our scripture then they're going to rewrite the bible in the next 20 years for us and we're already seeing it yeah. so i don't go by how many people agree with with me and it's easy to fall into that, Chris. And I know you know this. You're study. You out. You're out there. You're engaging atheists. You're discussing. You've had. You've talked to Barton. It's easy just to conform. Mm-hmm. Well, that's the consensus of scholars. And you know what I'm learning? When people say that, it's like, okay, well, what consensus was taken? And which scholars? Can you show me a poll. <laughs> uh, I recently received a um, a group uh, that met in England on. First Timothy, Second Timothy, and Titus. In fact, it was quite interesting um, how I think it was Elijah Hickson that sent it to me. He was shocked to see the different uh, groups that had 
voted on verses or books of the Bible that they really thought was Paul or something like that. And to his shock, and if I can find the statistics in here, it was quite fascinating because he had sent it to me and I was a little bit surprised as well. How many people in a liberal sect of Christianity accepted these documents of first second timothy as pauline it was quite shocking actually um it was almost a third and then the other third was undecided they were okay with it being paul but they weren't confident in it so they did a consensus and the consensus was almost 50 50. Mm -hmm. so again where are these consensuses like where i hear this other well the consensus of scholars believe this and I want to know where the numbers are because there's a lot of people that are undecided, not certain. Um, there's not that many people that are staunch, like that never and under any circumstance could be Paul. The people that read their books say that, <laughs> but the book writers are a lot more careful with their words. Mm. And so we built a consensus by opinion amongst peers. And it's really not scholars building the consensus. It's readers of the scholars that are building yeah. this consensus. A lot of scholars are undecided or unwilling to make a final conclusion of confidence. And they'll just be ambiguous about it and just leave it as is. It's the followers that read the book and say, well, they're saying it's not Paul. It's like, yeah, that's not exactly what they said. So when we start getting into the consensus and numbers games, I think we've reached a very dangerous territory. We need to be studying this for ourselves. Yeah, read Bart Ehrman, but also read a conservative Christian, too. Read Polycarp. Study Eusebius. Read Jerome's work on this. Go through the Church Fathers. Read the earliest portions of the second century with, with Ignatius's letters. Look at it for yourself. Examine the history for yourself. Make a conclusion on the basis of the evidence not based on a poll that was taken amongst believers, unbelievers, liberals, conservatives alike. That's not how we decide issues. We don't, we're not voting on truth. Truth is truth. Yeah. Whether five people got it right out of 5,000 or 5,000 people out of 5,005 got it right, it really doesn't matter what the number is. Truth is not something that people vote on. Truth is what God has laid for us in our world. It's a reality. It's something that can be obtained. It's something that can be studied. It's something that can be proven. It's something that can be shown by evidence. And if we're going to do it off of a vote, then who cares about evidence? Yeah. Who cares about the data? Yeah. We voted on it. So this isn't a consensus. Yeah. I would do everything we can to study any document, any research we have, study the full field, make a conclusion from the evidence and let the, the the facts decide where we go if we're in the minority then we're going to have a hard fight if we're in the majority then we have it easy for a while either way i think our job is to find the truth and that's what i believe the lord has called me to do in this field and i know that there's many others who are doing the same exact thing yeah it's very good i i remember at elementary school i can almost picture it a poster on the wall um this is like fourth grade that said what is popular is often not true and what is true is often not popular so yeah let's sure. let's stop looking at numbers all right well let's leave our viewers with a few resources they may be able to follow up on beginning with your own if it is available is your um doctoral work that we've been discussing available and if not might it be at some point in the near future 
I hope I hope for it to be. It is hardbound in the library down at uh, Louisiana Baptist Theological Seminary, but uh, that's freshly printed. Um, and um, they were like, and I had to pay for it, right? Um, and they're like, do you want your copy? Do you want a copy of your own? I was like, do I got to pay for it? They're like, yeah, it's like an extra 80 bucks. I said, nah, I've got the digital version. <laughs> I wrote it. I can go into it anytime. Just put it in the library. Um, so at some point, I think they would be, but I have written numerous articles that have stemmed from this that are currently available on the citylightseattle.com uh, website. If you go to different blogs, I've done different writings on the fathers. I've done numerous discussions on YouTube. I was on James White's program on the dividing line discussing First Clement. I had a, a good two-hour discussion with um, Robert Price on um, Samuel Neeson's program uh, that's now part of City Light Apologetics, um, Explain Apologetics. Um, I've done debates on this. I've debated the Muslims, I've debated the atheists, I've debated the progressive Christians on it. Um, there's numerous articles on the Gnostic Gospels that I've written on City Light. Um, Mark 2.26 controversy, the very passage that spun uh, Bart Ehrman in the direction he's in today, uh, and the different options there. All of that's on our website at uh, citylightseattle.com. And uh, it's it's also on citylightashville.com uh, as well. It just takes you right back to the City Light Seattle uh, website. But all of that's available. Uh, I have a couple of research on canon on academia.edu on um, defining the canon. Uh, so the dissertation isn't available yet. I want to do a lot more with it uh, over the next couple of years. And I say that because I know I won't do it as fast as I want to do it because I'll get busy with other projects. But I will eventually try to publish all this. I, I'm not hiding it, though, but if, if anybody was interested in some of the, the charts, I've shared them on different New Testament um, uh, groups on Facebook and social media, and I've shared the charts and the graphs and things like that. And people, have, I've, I've emailed it hundreds of times to, to people over the last couple of years, uh, because as I wrote, I would stop and chart it out. And then I would share it on a page and people would ask for the details behind it. And then eventually I wrote my entire dissertation over that period of time. So, um, I, I mean, if anybody would want it, I can send them the background data like you received, Chris. I'm, I'm not afraid to email that to anybody that's interested. <clears throat> and, and how would they get a hold of you if they do want to get that background information? Um, two, two ways. Uh, best two ways would be email uh, sboyce for Stephen, sboyce at citylightseattle.com or sboyce at citylightashville.com. Either one will come to me. Uh, I'm also on Facebook. Uh, if you want to reach out through a Facebook message to do that as well, that's totally fine. But the quickest, most efficient way to do it would be on email sboyce at uh, sboyce at citylightashville.com or sboyce at citylightseattle.com. Awesome. Um, Stephen, every time I talk to you, I have a great time. I really appreciate you joining me and, and going over this material with me. Um, and I look forward to talking to you more in the future. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me, Chris. Appreciate it, bud. All right, folks. Well, thank you so much for tuning in. Um, or if you've watched after the live stream, uh, thank you for watching the, the recorded stream there. Um, just a reminder, this Thursday at 4 p.m. on Trinity Radio, I will be debating the topic of whether annihilationism is heresy. So check that out. And then keep be on the lookout on Tim Stratton's Free Thinking Ministries YouTube channel uh, for my soon coming appearance on that show. Um, but otherwise, come back to this very YouTube channel, The Apologetics 2. 
two weeks from today, which will be Monday, May 3rd, I believe, at 6 p.m. Pacific, 9 p.m. Eastern. And I will look forward to seeing you then. Thank you so much, and bye-bye. I've been your host, Chris Date, and thanks so much for watching The Apologetics, where we think together through what we believe, why we believe it, and not something else. If you've enjoyed this episode, please click the thumbs up, like icon, the subscribe button, and the bell icon to receive notifications when new videos are streamed or uploaded. Either way, come back in two weeks for the next episode of The Apologetics, streaming live on YouTube every other Monday at 6 p.m. Pacific. Until then...